All right, well, I trust that's an encouragement in some way, just seeing into the faces of those people, realizing that the message we hold in our hands transcends cultural barriers, transcends language barriers, is powerful to save. Um, being able to take that message forward uh, is, is certainly a joy. That Swandik Sunday, that man that you saw interviewed there in that video, I met him for the first time in March of 2020. March of 2020 is a month we'll all remember as long as we live, right? COVID lockdowns all over the world. It was happening here, it was happening there. The president said, you can't transport people on motorcycles. You can't uh, go into uh, open markets anymore. And I'm not sure how that's supposed to work in an African uh, context. Really difficult uh, lockdown restrictions. We weren't allowed to drive our car. And at one day, during that time, I go out my front gate of the, of the little compound we live in and see this man sitting up like a makeshift roadside shoe stand to sell shoes. I hadn't seen that man before, so I went over and, and said, hey, are you new to this um, area? And he said, no, I live here, but you've probably never seen me because I'm always in the market selling shoes like seven days a week, 14 hours a day, always there. But the market closed down, and that was Sunday. That was this man. His English is really good, as you saw there. So he became our best language helper. So as we learned this language, we would go around home to home and um, just just transcribe all these words we could get from people, understanding as much as we could. He was their best helper. We had a good relationship, a language learning relationship. And one day, not long after, Lindsay and I got the kids together, went over to his house, and he was out um, selling shoes. And his wife and little kids were there, two little kids and his wife, Susan. And his wife had this like gash on her head, uh, some kind of wound. It looked pretty bad. And I said, uh, Susan, what, what happened to your head? And she said, her English is not like uh, Sundays. She said, um, And Lindsay and I looked at each other and, you hear that right? She said, this morning when I went to get water in the valley, which is something she does every morning, um, she said, when I went to get water in the valley, an evil spirit came out of the water and got me. And I fell down in the water and smashed my face on the rocks. Hadn't heard that one before, so we were surprised. And I'm not always sure what to do with that stuff, by the way. It could be very real, or it could be a little superstitious. You don't know for sure. But we have the answers, amen? We have God's word. Sunday says, we're fearing. We don't know what to do about these evil spirits. This stuff has been happening. And I said, Sunday, let's do a Bible study. So from at that point in time, our relationship turned to a spiritual relationship. We got to do that Bible study and watch him joyfully embrace the gospel. Um, I share that story really because it's a testimony to the grace of God. It's a testimony to the way God used COVID lockdown. So for all the inconvenience you all face through that, you'll meet Swandik Sunday in heaven one day. And also because that is really typical of what this first term has been for us, if you all, as you all have been praying for us, is this matter of, of language learning, relationship building, and seeing that bridge into true relationships that create gospel opportunities. Uh, it's been exciting to see God lead, really direct steps and create um, um, special divine opportunities for the gospel. Appreciate your prayers. Let me share two brief prayer requests, and uh, we'll have really adequate time to get into this ministry and get you caught up on that this evening. But first prayer request is for these Muslim people. We'll talk more about it tonight. But there's an open door, an opportunity, where we can have relationships with people. They're not um, hostile generally. Um, it's an opportunity to just be in homes and have relationships and share the gospel with them. If you'd pray, God would work in the, in the Muslim community. That's the first thing. The second, I kind of put these on the back of our prayer card. So if you grab a new prayer card, 
with all our, with our new kids on the back of, on, on it um, on your way out. Second prayer request is that God would raise up strong spiritual leaders for these village churches. Uh, this is a young ministry. We got there in 2019. The Prettymans were there a couple years before that, and they reached the field in 2017. It's a young ministry. These are young churches. And as you can imagine, um, there's leadership challenges, uh, new believers leading churches. And we're praying that God would do a special work of just raising up strong men that are grounded in his word and are um, really able to lead churches and a multiplication of churches. That's something we're trusting God to do. This training center that you saw there in the video, it was an outgrowth of just realizing this is a central part of our task as missionaries in that place to equip, 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 train them, teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded you. Second Timothy 2, 2, commit truth to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. But we are dependent on the power of the Holy Spirit to do that work. So if we pray about that with us, the Lord, that the Lord would lead us to the right men, men that are, that are serious, and uh, that that work of discipleship would really be accomplished uh, in their lives. Well, let's turn on our Bibles here this morning. The First Thessalonians chapter 2, if you would please. First Thessalonians chapter 2. This is a passage I really come to uh, see as a missions passage, something that we can learn from and uh, that applies so much to us today. First Thessalonians chapter 2, I'll read um, eight verses here and then we'll ask the Lord to bless our time as we look into his word this morning. We begin reading in verse 1. First uh, Thessalonians 2. All right. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you, nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. This is a time when the Apostle Paul is writing back to a church that he was right in the middle of seeing planted. He was writing more than a year later. He had traveled on. That church had spent some time without him now. And this church had gained a reputation as being of an incredibly loving church. What God accomplished through this church is is incredible. The compliments paid to the church he's writing to are just amazing. And if you look at uh, chapter 1, verse 8, look at chapter 1, verse 8, he tells this church, from you sounded out the word of the Lord not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God word is spread abroad uh, so that we need not to speak anything. Wow. I think of the church of Thessalonica as a missionary's uh, dream come true church. Okay. He's telling this church, everyone's heard about you guys. Macedonia and Achaia, everyone's heard about you, so much so, I don't have anything else to say. Now, chapter 2, the eight verses we just read, the Apostle Paul is writing this church, 
saying, hey, when we came and had that gospel ministry in Thessalonica, here's how we went about it. Here's what we did. No doubt, these words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, are very instructive and helpful for this church in Thessalonica and apply so much to us today. So let's look into this here this morning. Father, I pray you'd bless um, our time here this morning as we look to you. Lord, we want to worship you here this morning in our hearts. And we already have with, with song, Lord, as we have um, sought to lift up your name. I pray you'd be glorified as we look into your word that is certainly powerful and applicable to us. I pray you'd speak to us in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, chapter 2 is where the Apostle Paul writes to this church saying, here's how we came in unto you. One writer called this passage um, Missions 101 of the early church. Before we look into this, if you turn back with me to Acts chapter 17. Acts 17 is really significant to this because it's the time when uh, the Apostle Paul with Silas went to Thessalonica for the first time. So they were traveling um, on their second missionary journey, right? And they were traveling westward. Uh, They had passed through uh, Philippi already, and the Lord led them to Thessalonica. And the account of what happens in Thessalonica is very brief, yet powerful. So let's just read it in Acts 17, beginning in verse 1 of Acts 17. The Bible says this, Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where was a synagogue of the Jews. Okay, so here they are. They've reached... um, They've reached to uh, Thessalonica in verse 1. Verse 2, And Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now, I love that. Picture that with me. Here you have these missionaries, Paul and Silas, two young men, that have come into a town that is, is an unreached place. There's no church. There's no gospel ministry. Their, their custom was to go into the synagogue. That's just what they would do. It's what the Bible says here. Their manner was to go into the synagogue, and the Bible tells us they went in the synagogue and did what? Open scriptures. So that was one real advantage of going to the synagogue. They had scriptures there. So they opened scriptures, and here's what they did from there, verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus, who I preach unto you, is Christ. So here the Bible tells us two things that these men did as they went into the synagogue um, that they essentially uh, spoke as part of their message to these people. Number one, they alleged that Jesus Christ had to suffer. Why did Jesus Christ have to suffer? They would have opened scripture and shown them Jesus Christ had to suffer. He had to suffer because of the fall of man, because mankind rejected God because mankind needed a redeemer. And from scripture, we can see the redemptive plan of Christ put into motion from long ago that has now culminated with the coming of Jesus Christ. He showed them Jesus Christ had to suffer. I I love that. This is one time that I'd like to see when I get to heaven, next to see this very um, gospel presentation. Show these people Jesus Christ had to suffer. And the second, also mentioned here in verse 3 of Acts 17, um, and that Jesus who I preach to you, is Christ. So he was talking primarily, at least initially, to Jews. Jews that had heard about this man named Jesus, this one they called the King of the Jews, this news from Jerusalem. They'd heard about his dying on the cross. People probably didn't know what to think and certainly had heard all kinds of rumors uh, that his body was stolen. They did, but the point is this. 
They didn't believe he was the Christ. They hadn't put their faith in him as the true answer for their sin, their hope for eternity. The Apostle Paul presented to them, Jesus is the Christ. He shared the gospel with them. And verse 4 is is a good, um, just really simple summary of what happened. Verse 4, And some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, and of the devout Greeks, a great multitude, and of the chief women, not a few. So interesting description of the fruit of this ministry. It mentions many Greeks, so not necessarily Jews, but Greeks, uh, um, heard, understood, and embraced the message that was shared with them, and also many women um, responded to the gospel. God worked, and a church was begun at this point in time. Now, if you turn back with me to 1 Thessalonians 2. God worked in this way. The news from this church sounded out over all of Macedonia. They were known as a loving church. They were known as a place um, that, that would just genuinely love one another. In chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians, let's look at this together now and, and um, see what we can learn from this powerful passage. Verse 1, he tells the church this, For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. So he's talking about his entrance. He's telling them, hey, you guys know this. You were there. He says, and our entrance in unto you was not in vain. That's the first statement he says. I don't know how, th- how that strikes you. Um, the, my initial reaction to, to reading that or thinking about that is, obviously, it wasn't in vain. Obviously, when they came, it wasn't worthless. But realize, I think this church, Thessalonica, and certainly us today, need to hear this. When the gospel goes forward, when you preach truth, open scripture to someone, it's not in vain. It's powerful. When your pastor stands up here every Sunday and opens the word of God and shows us and shows what the word of God says so we can understand it and apply it to our lives, that's powerful. There's nothing vain about that. To be transparent with you, there's been times in Uganda, specifically with Muslim people, uh, the Muslim ministry was very new to me. I hadn't experienced that much before being in Uganda. There's, there was times when I would um, have opportunities some, in some way to share truth with a Muslim person, and they reject it. Oh, man, just um, completely reject it. And I walk away thinking to myself, not sure that did any good. But the Word of God tells us it's powerful. It is sharp. Think of the uh, Isaiah 55 passage that talks about the word of God being like the rain, right? That falls from the ground. It hits the ground, and it will not return void. We hold in our hands a message that is not in vain. So he tells his church, first of all, look, our entrance was not in vain. Why? Because of the message that they were sharing with these people. And verse 2 expounds on that. It says, but, look at verse 2, but... Even after that we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi, uh, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. What's he talking about here? Um, What's this verse saying? He said, after we suffered before at Philippi. Well, they just came from Philippi. That was their last stop before Thessalonica. And he's telling this church, look, after we suffered in Philippi, and were treated shamefully, we were still bold enough to come. What happened in Philippi is the time Paul and Silas were put in jail, right? And after being whipped, after being beaten, that would have been a terrible experience. They spent the night in jail, and then that's when they saw that miracle take place where their chains fell off and the Philippian jailer turned to Christ. They 
walked out of that jail cell and immediately set out for Thessalonica. That's incredible. Just thinking through that situation, as they reached Thessalonica, as they began that gospel ministry in the synagogue that we just read about, just reasonably, they would have been physically recovering still from Philippi. Their backs, right, healing. Any wounds they had, still recovering. And he's telling this church, now look, Paul was not shy about saying, follow me as I also follow Christ. He was an example that God gave to these people and said, after we had suffered before and were shamefully entreated, treated awful at, at Philippi, we were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. These people were bold. I'm imagining being Silas in that situation, you know, man number two following Paul, saying, man, Paul, let's, you know, maybe find a different approach. That was bad, right? That's not in the Bible, so you can do what you want with that. But these guys were bold. Look at verse 3 with me, if you would. Now tells the church this, okay? We are bold to come to you. The gospel is not in vain. Our message was powerful after being treated terribly. And verse 3 talks more about this message that he shares with them. So verse 3, For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. So our exhortation, in other words, what we exhorted you with, what we shared, was number one, not of deceit. Now, once again, that statement uh, at first glance might, might strike you a little bit like, obviously you weren't deceiving them. Obviously it wasn't a message of deception. But realize this makes this truth, the fact that their message was not of deceit, makes the messenger of the gospel really unique in the world today. The fact that we hold a book that is true and right, and we can share it with people, and there is no deception involved whatsoever. There was a time in uh, Uganda, I think it was during one of the COVID lockdown times when I was walking, doing a lot of walking, uh, because we can drive our car. I was walking to a market, and um, there was a, a home off to the left side of the road, a little cluster of grass roof huts that I'd been to one time before, so I'd met those people, and I saw they were out, so they waved, and I stopped by just to say hi and, and talk with them. Um, they didn't speak really any English, so they would help me with, with language learning and laugh at my mistakes, and that was good. So anyway, so I was with them kind of making small talk, and I said, hey, um, what do you do for a living? I saw he didn't have gardens there at his house, so I figured he must have some kind of work outside um, the village. <coughs> anyway, he says, um, oh, I'm a Catholic priest in Logiri. So that's a village that's like 40 miles away, kind of a deep Lugbara village part of our people group, <coughs> excuse me, and he, um, yeah, so he tells me he's a Catholic priest, and I thought that was a little odd, because he uh, clearly had his wife and kids with him, and it's like really common knowledge that Catholic priests don't have uh, wives. So I said, um, I said, so, sabato si mi mudali at yo barrio luzu, tisari si mi ovudi a mi okube, and he laughs. I said, how is it that you can um, go be the Catholic priest there, but here you're staying with your wife and your kids? I thought, Catholic priests aren't allowed to have a wife. I feel like as a foreigner, I can just ask the dumb questions sometimes, you know. So he, um, he laughs, and he says, oh, um, we're in hiding here. He said, I go there to be the Catholic priest in Logiri, but I, I want to have a wife, so I live in this village, and, and, I'm, and I'm hiding my wife. I was like, what? Found out about a secret accident? I couldn't believe that, you know. I thought that was hilarious. I'm like, oh, man, I guess I won't tell anyone, right? Um, so... 
I thought, you know, I came home and told Lindsay, I was like, hey, Uncle, you over here as a secret wife. You know, he's a Catholic priest in Logiri. Um, and thought, just thought it was hilarious. Then I thought about it more. I know that village, the village of Logiri. Um, it's a deep village, a few thousand people. All they have is that Catholic church. I think there's a mosque out there somewhere, but all they have is that Catholic church. And that man goes there every weekend, puts on his, his white whatever, does all of his religious stuff, deceiving people. That's terrible. Think about what that means. Young people coming into that church, any, any people, right, coming into that church, I would hope, like, looking for truth, sincerely looking for truth to some extent, right, wanting to know something about God, something about eternity. And this man is standing up in deception. And believe me, the deception goes far beyond just a secret wife somewhere. Deception. When I open the word of God to someone, right, when, when people walk into this church and they have an opportunity to sit in this class or that Bible study or, this, or the Sunday morning service to hear truth, there is no deception of all. This is an open book. They can ask me any question they want uh, from God's word, and I'll either have the answer or can go find the answer, right? Our, 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 the truth that we hold is complete, and it is right. What a joy. What a blessing that is. The Apostle Paul tells this church, look, church, when I came to you, our exhortation, what we preached, when I showed you that Jesus Christ had to die, when I showed you that Jesus is the Christ, it was not deception. It was truth. We're fortunate people. He says, our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness. There's another thing mentioned here. I think it's interesting that he mentions this matter of uncleanness. This is really um, clearly talking about a type of moral uncleanness. And shows that it shows us how significant that is to a gospel ministry as the gospel is going forward. That the messenger of the gospel be pure in every way. That there's no uncleanness involved. He says our message was not of deceit, not of uncleanness, nor in guile, is the other thing mentioned here in this verse 3. Um, this verse really gives us the idea of no deceit and no error. In other words, church, when we came, what we shared with you, when we preached to you, we were not wrong. Okay, there was, no, there was not error. There's another man in our village named Agobi. Agobi is the imam of our local mosque, so he's essentially like the Quran pre- teacher, Quran preacher of our local mosque. Um, he's an older man. He has children, uh, two wives, many children, many grandchildren. Uh, he walks up his long hill five times a day to go into the mosque and, and uh, go about their prayers and teaching the Quran. I believe, as I've gotten to know him, that he sincerely is teaching what he thinks is right. But we understand he's just wrong, right? He's just blinded. He's just an error. Praise God that we can be stewards of the gospel, that we can embrace God's word and study it, and know that what we have is right. Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but, verse 4, here's the other side of that uh, coin, so to speak. So verse 4, but as we uh, were allowed of God, think about these words, this is so good, but as we were allowed of God, to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God, which tries our hearts. Those words feel show some type of like posture of humility on the part of the Apostle Paul saying, look, we were allowed of God to be put in trust with 
the gospel. Like many times in, in, in scripture, the apostle Paul calls himself uh, a steward of the gospel. Someone who's been entrusted with something valuable. Here he's saying, look, we were allowed of God to be put in trust in this, in, to be put in trust with this. Even so we speak, that's why we spoke to you. One of the first um, Muslim relationships we got to have uh, in Uganda was with a man named Ahmed Musa. I mentioned him in a prayer letter once or twice. So some of you may um, have prayed for him in the past. Uh, he's not come to Christ, but we've got, got to have a relationship with him. Um, Ahmed Musa has a bruise on his forehead, like a purple and blue right here on his forehead, all the time. If you go there right now, I promise you he'll have that bruise. He has that bruise on his already dark black skin, perpetuated all the time by praying, prostrate on the ground, hitting his face uh, on the cement. Five times a day doing that. A very faithful Muslim man. Um, again, the first one I actually got to have a personal relationship with. One day, I was at his house uh, doing a Bible study. He was open to that after we got to know him and had tea with him a number of times. He was open to the idea of doing a Bible study. Um, he, he claimed to believe the Bible, yet gives the Quran preeminence. He was open to understanding uh, what the Bible says. We were doing a Bible study, I think, in the book of, of John, looking at who the biblical Jesus is. And um, as we're doing this Bible study, he says, Oh, Joe, hold on just a second. I need to get my prayer mat. The clock had struck whatever the time was to pray, right? So he, he got his prayer mat, set it on the ground, faced it toward um, Mecca, as they're instructed to do, right? And began to pray in that way. And uh, I tell this story because it was really, uh, it, it made an impression on me. I'd never seen that up close and personally in that, in that way. He finished praying, and um, he sat there kind of Indian style on the ground as I was right there next to him. And he was praying, praying in Arabic, a language he doesn't understand, so something to see. Anyway, he finishes, and I said, Ahmed, man, you're faithful. You are faithful to what you believe. I respect that which I really do. He's, he's serious about what he believes to be right, even though we understand he's, he's wrong. I said, Ahmed, man, if, if you and I were to um, get hit by one of these buses today, you and I finish today, what happens to you? Where are you going to go? And he looked at me and like really thought about the question and looked off in the distance and just kind of thought about it. And looks at me and says, I don't know. He said, I have no idea where I'll go. And I thought, that is terrible. This man's in bondage. He's doing everything they're telling him to do. And he is hopeless. There's a bruise on his head. Right? His entire family, faithfully in Islam, fasting when they tell him to fast, praying when they tell him to pray, doing it all. And he has no hope, not any hope for this life, not any hope for eternity. You and I can say with the Apostle Paul, we've been allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel. This is precious. For some reason, because of the grace of God, an overwhelming portion of the grace of God, I was born into a home where they shared with me the gospel. It was right. It was from the Bible. They taught it to me from the time I could understand English. What an overwhelming portion of grace. What a blessing that is. One out of four human beings on the, on the globe today subscribe to that very religion, subscribe to Islam. 
uh, not to mention massive other groups of, of, of empty religions, people that have belief systems or no belief system, regardless, hopeless. We're stewards of the gospel this morning. Praise, praise God for that. We are allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. He's telling this church not to please God. I'm excuse me, sorry, not to please men, but to please God, who is the one who tries our hearts. Let me, let me read on verses 5 and 6, if you look at that with me. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as you know, um, nor a cloak of covetousness. God is witness of that. Uh, verse 6, nor of men sought we glory, neither of, uh, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. Interesting thing he's telling this church here. He's saying, look, when we came, we did not come with a cloak of covetousness. Cloak of, of covetousness is sort of like a coming with a pretext of greed. Uh, a, a greediness about what their purpose was. Um, again, it may seem like, well, obviously that's, the, that's not what they were doing, but as we know both in that time in the world as well as today, religion often boils down to that, some way of, of, of gain, which is terrible. As messengers of the gospel, we're not that. We can say with the Apostle Paul, we did not come with that. We don't, um, we don't, we don't serve God for any reason other than to please God. Not to please men, not to get gain uh, from that. There was, well, I'll take time for this real quick. There was a time I was in a Bible study with a man named Alema David. He was someone who lives really close to us, um, Catholic background. Um, he has a wife and a little, little baby boy. One day I was with David at his house. He was helping me with language learning. We got through a Bible study with David. <coughs> and... Um, his wife and son were gone. They were not there at the house. I said, so where's uh, Nestor and Sammy today? I was just wondering, you know, what they're up to. And he said, oh, um, Nestor took the baby to the church to be baptized. So very common, right, in the Catholic um, culture. They're sprinkling the baby. And I said, um, why? why? Why are you doing that? And that was a fair question, right? And he had some answer like, oh, it's just, it's just what we do, you know. Um, and he said, but uh, pray for me because I don't have the 30,000 shillings to pay for the baptism certificate. Um, 30,000 shillings, that's like $8. He makes $1.50 a day, so that's a lot of money. These are, not, these are pretty poor people. And he didn't have the money. He was concerned about it. He said, pray for me, I don't have that, that money. So once again, I asked him, why are, why are you buying that certificate? And he said, well, you know, what if something happens to Sammy? And I said, like, you mean if, if uh, Sammy were to die, get sick and die? And he said, yeah, if Sammy died, he would, he would uh, he'd go to hell. That's terrible. That some religious person would stand up and give them that impression, right? Cloak of covetousness, pretext, a pretext of greed, telling them all these religious things they're supposed to do. It's, it's sort of frustrating to see when you're looking at someone you love and care about. And by the way, David turned to Christ. We did a Bible study, and he decided, for all the rest of my kids, we're not buying baptism certificates. So that was exciting to see. The Apostle Paul says, look, church, when we came, there was no greed, okay? There was no cloak of covetousness. We did not come to please men. We came to please God. And says, look, as apostles, we could have been burdensome in that way, as the apostles of Christ. In other words, they had the mm, like social clout to maybe pull that off if they wanted to. But the point is they didn't. They came with a pure message. Now the last two verses we'll look at, if you look at this with me here as we finish. Verse, verse, let me read verses 7 and 8. But 
we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. It tells this church, this might, could potentially be the most significant thing we look at here this morning, it tells this church, look, it wasn't greed, it wasn't covetousness, okay? We weren't pleasing men, but rather, we were gentle. Verse 7, we were gentle among you like a nurse. Now, a simple word study on that word nurse shows us that it's talking about a nursing mother. So we were gentle, and then gives this church a, a um, very relatable illustration of how gentle they were, what he's trying to say. We were gentle like a nursing mother caring for her baby. What example could you give that's just more caring, more loving, more gentle, more kind than that? That's how gentle we were. We were really, really gentle when we came in unto you. That's saying a lot, going to a Gentile city that had no gospel influence as two men that were just beaten in the last city, going into Thessalonica with the gentleness of a nursing mother. They loved those people. And then goes on in verse 8 to say, look, we were gentle, being affectionately desirous of you. So we get what that's saying. They, they, they had a great affection for them. They desired what? They desired that they would embrace the gospel. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing. In other words, we wanted to impart to you not the gospel of God only. Now think about those words. It tells this church, hey, when we came, we didn't only give you the gospel. Now, I find that a little bizarre, honestly. Yeah, these people were all about the gospel. The New Testament is all about the gospel. I mean, God's word is all about the gospel. Romans chapter 1, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God and a salvation for everyone who believes. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, um, the preaching of the cross is, is foolishness to them that perish, but to us who are saved, it's the power of God. Now he's telling this church, look, when we came, uh, we didn't only give you the gospel. What's he saying? Verse 8. Um, excuse me. Verse 8. Um, not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. He's saying, when we came, we didn't only give you the gospel, we gave you ourselves, because you were dear unto us. With gentleness, with love, we gave you not only the gospel, but we gave you and imparted unto you ourselves. This really worked in Thessalonica. As they gave of themselves in that way, as they poured themselves out, out of, out of desire to please God, believing that the message they had was true, and genuinely loving those people, they poured themselves out. The power of that comes from the gospel. Without the gospel, what is our message? I mean, the gospel is our message. But they gave of their own souls. I need to ask myself, as, as followers of Christ, as people that now steward the gospel today, we need to ask ourselves, how are we stewarding the gospel? And how are we doing imparting our souls to people? This worked. This really worked in, Thess in, uh, in Thessalonica. And uh, there's a number of times mentioned. Um, chapter 4, verse 8 tells this church, look, um, as touching brotherly love, 
you need not that I write unto you, for you yourselves are taught of God to love one another, and indeed you do it toward all the brethren which are in all Macedonia, but we beseech you, brethren, that you increase more and more. He says, look, when it comes to brotherly love, you guys got it. All I have to say is keep doing it when it comes to brotherly love. No doubt that was an outgrowth of the example that these missionaries showed to them. <clears throat> How can I impart my soul to people? We're surrounded by lost people, right? We all have lost people in our lives in some way. We certainly should have relationships with lost people. How can we impart our souls to them? Give of ourselves. There's a time and a place to take a gospel tract and just hand it to someone. Someone you've never met before, someone you might never meet again, you know, in a public situation. Hand them the tract and trust God to use the truth in that tract. That's certainly good, and we should be people that do that. But what worked here, and what certainly is a good, sound, biblical instruction for us, is to find ways to give of ourselves to people and show them Christ in order to give them the gospel. <clears throat> Let me close with this. There was, um, well, okay, that man, Agobi, that I mentioned before, <laughs> the imam in our village, um, it was one that I met, like, right away when we got to Uganda. I think the first month or two, I met Agobi, <clears throat> and he... Um, was really cold, okay? He <laughs> didn't really want a relationship. I think he figured out that we were not there to further his cause there in that village of, of Islam. So he was cold to me, and he spoke like very little English, and my Lugbara was like 2%, so our relationship was very surface. Anyway, I began to pray for Agobi because um, of that, and also because I would hear him praying over the speaker of the mosque every morning while I was doing my devotions. So <clears throat> if you know what that sounds like. So I began to pray for him, um, and time went by. A lot of time went by, like a couple of years went by, and our relationship didn't really grow until there was a time when um, there was this administrative event in our village where men in the village would get together and discuss certain things, sort of hard to describe, but just this cultural thing they would do. And they invited me to go, um, so I, I, t I was happy for the opportunity to meet new people. I went and ate this meal with like 30 men in our village, <coughs> excuse me, and uh, Agobi was there. I ended up sitting right next to him, like, by coincidence, and he was still very quiet. We didn't talk much. Uh, we finished the meal, and Agobi turned to me and I was, as I was about to leave, and Agobi says, um, hey, why don't you come to my home tomorrow with your family uh, for tea? I said, absolutely, I'm down. I was excited about that. So the next morning, uh, we got the kids together, and Lindsay and I walked um, like a kilometer down the road to his house, and he was there with his, his uh, communal living situation, kids and grandkids and everyone there. And we had tea with him. And Agobi says, look, um, Joe, you might as well know that it meant a lot to me that you came and had that meal with us. And I wanted to invite you to my home for tea just to show you my appreciation for being a part of that event. I had no idea. I was shocked by that. I didn't realize it would mean that much to him. But in that, in that culture, it really does to sit and have a meal and, um, I guess, participate in their culture, just uh, connect in that way. From that became an opportunity to really get to know Agobi, and we did a Bible study in his home. We started in Genesis in the Luke Barra Bible and started to look at um, the redemptive plan that Christ has put in motion and see who the biblical Jesus is. He's not yet turned to Christ, so if you pray for Agobi. But I, I walked away from that and thought, Lord, show me how to impart my soul to people. Show me how to really share my life with them, right? We need the Holy Spirit to direct us in that so that we can be like the Apostle Paul, be like this example given to us in Scripture 
where we certainly give them the gospel. The gospel's powerful. Not the gospel of God only, but our own souls because of how dear they are to us. May God use each one of us as we steward the gospel in that way. Father, we thank you, Lord. We are fortunate people to have been entrusted with your word, Lord, to have been entrusted with uh, the gospel. Someone shared it with me. Someone shared it with each one here that's accepted it. Lord, I pray you'd help us to steward it well, Lord, to represent you well. Lord, I pray that you would give us, uh, by your Holy Spirit, by your work in us, give us a love for people that would cause us to do this work of imparting ourselves to them. In Jesus' name we pray.